0: If you would please turn with me to Daniel chapter eleven uh, we'll be working our way f- from verses from verse two through verse thirty five so remember that um through most of the book of daniel the each episode contained within the book is, is contained within a single chapter but this uh is the second part of, of a vision that Daniel has beginning at the beginning of chapter 10 and ending at the end of chapter 12. So we're joining this story in medias res, as it were. So we're in uh, chapter 11, verse 2. This is the word of the Lord. The, the angel says to Daniel, And now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king shall arise, who shall rule with great dominion, and do as he wills. And as soon as he is arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity. Nor according to the authority with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. Then the king of the south shall be strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger than he and shall rule, and his authority shall be a great authority. After some years they shall make an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure, but she shall be given up and her attendants, he who fathered her, and he who supported her in those times. And from a branch from her roots, one shall arise in his place. He shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he shall deal with them and shall prevail. He shall also carry off to Egypt their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold, and for some years he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north." Then the latter shall come into the realm of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. His sons shall wage war and assemble a multitude of great forces, which shall keep coming and overflow and pass through, and again shall carry the war as far as his fortress. Then the king of the south, moved with rage, shall come out and fight against the king of the north, and he shall raise a great multitude, but it shall be given into his hand. And when the multitude is taken away, his heart shall be exalted. And he shall cast down tens of thousands, but he shall not prevail. For the king of the north shall again raise a multitude greater than the first. And after some years he shall come on with a great army and abundant supplies. In those times many shall rise against the king of the south, and the violent among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fail. Then the king of the north shall come and throw up siege works and take a well-fortified city, And the forces of the south shall not stand, or even his best troops, for there shall be no strength to stand. But he who comes against him shall do as he wills, and none shall stand before him. And he shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his hand. He shall set his face to come with the strength of his whole kingdom, and he shall bring terms of an agreement and perform them. He shall give him the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom, but it shall not stand or be to his advantage." Afterward, he shall turn his face to the coastlands, and shall capture many of them, but a commander shall put an end to his insolence. Indeed, he shall turn his insolence back upon them upon, back upon him. Then he shall turn his face back toward the fortresses of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall, and shall not be found. Then shall arise in his place one who shall send an exactor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom. But within a few days he shall be broken, neither in anger. Nor in battle. In his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken, even the prince of the covenant. And from the time that an alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully, and he shall become strong with a small people. Without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the province, and he shall do what neither his fathers nor his father's fathers have done, scattering among him plunder, spoil, and goods. He shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. And he shall stir up his power and his heart against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall wage war with an exceedingly great and mighty army, but he shall not stand, for plots shall be devised against him. Even those who eat his food shall break him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. And as for the two kings, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. They shall speak lies at the same table, but to no avail, for the end is yet to be at the time appointed. And he shall return to his land with great wealth, but his heart shall be set against the holy covenant, and he shall work his will and return to his own land." At the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be this time as it was before. For ships of Kittim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw, and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the holy covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the holy covenant. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress, and shall take away the regular burnt offering. And they shall set up the desolate, the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help, and many shall join themselves to them with flattery. And some of the wise shall stumble, so that they may be refined, purified, and made white." Until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. This is the word of the Lord. For seminary, I lived uh, for five years in St. Louis, and there's a lot to love about living there. One of the things that I loved was the weather. Uh, spring and fall were much like the weather we've had this week, a little cooler. Uh, but you add in some thunderstorms and the occasional tornado siren. Summers were hot and humid, which I don't mind so much. Uh, Winters were cold, didn't care for that, but they weren't horribly cold. And every year was a little different. I had one winter with 18 or 20 inches of snow. I had a winter with just a light dusting on one day, and that was it. I had a, a year where there were sub-zero temperatures followed by a really mild for St. Louis summer. And so the broad strokes of the weather would be the same year by year but the specifics were very different. And what accounts for this weather in St. Louis? Well there's always a tug-of-war going on in St. Louis. St. Louis is right in the center for you have to the north cold Arctic air coming from the north and across the Great Lakes. From the south, you have warm, humid air coming uh, from the Gulf of Mexico. And, and these, these air masses would move north and south over the course of the year. And the weather in St. Louis would change based on this tug of war. Daniel is alerted that he's about to encounter a tug of war between north and south. And it's going to be one over which God's people have... Essentially, no more control over this tug of war than they do over the weather. But where weather patterns are impersonal, although governed by God's providence, the tug of war that Daniel is going to learn of is all too personal. For his beloved home of Judah and the city of Jerusalem will be caught in the middle between uh, the Seleucid Empire on the north and east and the Ptolemaic kingdom on the south and west toward Egypt. And so for nearly 400 years, Judah will be controlled by one or another of these more powerful neighbors. And in the best of times, the people of God will be more or less left to their own devices, although with the threat of being shut down if they step out of line. But in the worst of times, they'll endure heavy persecution meant to demoralize, punish and bring them to heal. Now, political and social intrigue and plotting have certainly changed form in the millennia since Daniel's vision. But some things haven't changed. For God's people still live in a world that's hostile to the life of faith in the living God. Leslie Newbegin was a British missionary who saw a lot of gospel fruit in a challenging mission field in India. But yet when he came home to England, he found a mission field equally as foreign. For he realized that the modern West isn't just a secular society with no gods. It's a pagan society with false gods, gods of supposed objectivity and and supremacy of scientific knowledge, a god of absolutized, individual expression God of consumerism so for the people of God the question is how do we persevere how do we persevere amid the turmoil and the wicked hostility of the world that's around us and the answer in broad strokes is here in this portion of Daniel's vision that we've talked about so far. For it's through trust in God to accomplish his good and certain purposes and to exercise the wisdom that he alone can give. And that's why Daniel receives this message, so that he and God's people may know what's coming down the pike and be prepared. For Daniel has been through hard times, but God-given wisdom has seen him through. And hard times await all of God's people, and God-given wisdom will see them through too. Now, there's a lot happening in the history behind tonight's passage. So we're going to look at the instability and the wickedness of the nation's rule, but we're going to skate right through a lot of it and cover it very briefly. But a few verses we'll look at in more detail. To unpack three key themes of this text, we're going to look at the nation's instability, we're going to look at the nation's wickedness, and we'll look finally at the saints' wisdom, which is a gift from God. So we turn our attention first to the nation's instability. We look at this in verses 2 through 20. We're going to cruise through it really quickly, or as quickly as I can. Uh, But in verse 6, we'll stop and pause for a little bit, because it's a really representative story of the instability of the nations. So Daniel is receiving this message about 536 B.C. while he serves in the Persian Empire. And so in verse 2, the angelic messenger is telling Daniel that the Persian Empire's hegemony will reach its zenith in a rich king, Xerxes I, who reigned 486 to 465 BC. And at his peak, his empire stretched from Greece and Libya in the west all the way to the edge of India in the east. But his empire doesn't last. For in verses 3 through 4, we skip ahead 130 years to a mighty king, Alexander the Great, now we've met him before in chapter 8 for he, where he took the form of the charging male goat from the west. And Alexander led probably the most remarkable military c- campaign in history for he conquered the entire Persian empire in just 10 years. And yet at the height of his powers at age 32 he fell ill for 2 weeks and died. And for all of his power, he wasn't able even to secure his empire to be left to his own sons. So within a few years, his empire is carved into four kingdoms governed by some of his generals. And here in verse 5, we read that two of these kingdoms rose to prominence, the Seleucid Empire of the north and the Ptolemaic Kingdom of the south. So let's slow down a little further here in verse 6. A really great portrait of the instability of the nations. In, In 253 BC, the Ptolemaic kingdom was ruled by Ptolemy II Philadelphus and the Seleucid Empire by Antiochus II Theos. Now these two kings made peace with each other, and they sealed this peace by Antiochus uh, marrying Ptolemy's daughter, Bernice. Well, the only problem is that Antiochus is already married to Laodice. But this is a problem easily resolved, for Ptolemy just divorces Laodice and officially transfers regal succession to Bernice's children. And so the peace was secured, all lived happily ever after, and we'll sing our last song because the sermon's ending right here, right? It didn't last. For after Ptolemy Philadelphus died, Antiochus Theos left his new wife Bernice in Antioch, returns to Laodicea, transfers succession back to her son Seleucus II, Callinicus, and then dies himself, possibly by Laodicea poisoning him. And then Laodice has Bernice and her son murdered, so the throne is secure in the control of her son. And finally, for good measure, the new king of Egypt, Ptolemy III, was Bernice's brother. So he declares war on the Seleucid Empire and has Laodice herself executed. In the meantime, Laodice has started a civil war at home that would last 17 years. So much for this marriage securing a stable balance of power. Now we'll pass over verses 7 through 20 very quickly. For quite a while, the Ptolemies and the Seleucids, they duke it out, punching and counterpunching for control of the former Persian Empire. Um, but nobody really gains the upper hand for long. They fight mainly just over control of Syria and Palestine, Uh, But nothing really changes. The boundary stays pretty stable. Until in verses 13 through 16, we read that a breakthrough is made. Now, the Holy Land had been under Ptolemaic control for a long time, but at the Battle of Panium in 200 BC, the Seleucid king Antiochus the Great defeated the Ptolemaic general Scopus of Aetolia at this battle. And in the aftermath of that victory, Palestine came under Seleucid control. And so, Uh, So finally, uh, the the Holy Land actually changes hands, uh, really for the first time in a long time. We read in verse 14 that in the midst of this turmoil, of this transfer of power, some of the Jews thought they saw an opportunity to resist and gain, um, gain independence for themselves, but they misunderstood God's purpose and they failed. And we'll say more about that a little later. Well, emboldened by his victory, Antiochus the Great, in verses 17 through 19, we read that he tried to conquer Egypt, but he gets rebuffed by the Romans. And finally, in verse 20, Seleucus IV, he tries to seize the funds that are in the temple treasury in Jerusalem. But then his prime minister, who he sent for this task, Heliodorus, uh, he gets to the temple and he sees a divine apparition, and he tells his boss, no, I can't do that. And so you see all these plans of kings just going this way and that, um, plans to secure a future for themselves, and yet undone, unraveled by the opposition of other kings, sometimes by it not being the right time in God's plan, uh, and, and all things being, being engineered and worked out by God himself. And so after looking at the instability of the nations, we look at the wickedness of the nations. And for this, we turn to the story of the Seleucid king Antiochus the Fourth Epiphanes. That may even be a name some of you have heard of, which in his story is told here in verses 21 through 35. We'll focus up to verse 32. And again, I can't unpack every last word, but we'll, we'll see enough to establish Antiochus' own guilt for we begin in verse 21 with the rise of a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. Now Antiochus usurped the Seleucid throne in 175 BC, and he proved to be a man capable of every extreme of human character. For he could be cunning, he could be rash. He knew how to win friends and influence people, and he knew how to dispose of those friends and make new friends, and gain new influence, all to his own gain. We see this, for example, in verse 22, where it says he breaks the prince of the covenant, which is probably not a reference to any uh, Jewish religious figure, but a reference to someone he made alliance with, but betrayed. And in fact, throughout verses 22 through 24, we read that he wins his battles by betrayal, by flattery by buying people off. He, his first and very successful campaign against Egypt is foretold in verses 25 through 28, where at the conclusion of this campaign, he, he makes an uneasy alliance with the, with the Ptolemy Philometor, um, And yet, both sides, even in this uh, treaty, being intent on one day betraying the other. Well, Antiochus went a second time to attack Egypt later. We read about this in verses 29 through 30. And on this occasion, these ships of Kitim come in the form of the Roman trireme bearing Gaius Popilius Laenus, an ambassador, bearing the news that if Antiochus attacks Egypt again, Rome will declare war. Now Antiochus asked to go discuss this matter with his council, but Popilius draws a line in the sand around Antiochus and says, before you leave this circle, give me a reply that I can take back to the Roman Senate. Well, it didn't take Antiochus long to withdraw from Egypt, but he, he goes back to Jerusalem enraged at the humiliation he suffered. And he vents his rage on Jerusalem. And to make his own rage even worse, he is not happy with what he finds when he returns to Jerusalem. And we don't know exactly from the historical record what he did before or a- after his first campaign to Egypt and what he did after the second. But his, in his dealings with Jerusalem, he deposed the legitimate high priest so that he could install Jason a man who came from the priestly family but he was friendly to Antiochus's interests and in fact Jason actually just bought the position of high priest from Antiochus but a few years after that Jason is replaced in favor of Menelaus sorry Menelaus who simply outbid Jason for the high priesthood and Menelaus isn't even from the priestly family but this, we know, comes from the second unsuccessful Egyptian campaign. For Jason, while Antiochus was away, Jason hears a rumor that Antiochus has been killed. And so Jason gathers a band of mercenaries and takes charge of Jerusalem once again. Now, when Antiochus returns, he's already embarrassed by the Romans. And now he's been embarrassed by Jason and his actions against the majesty of Antiochus IV. So as we see in verses 30 through 32, Antiochus hires soldiers to rampage through Jerusalem on a Sabbath day. The book of 2 Maccabees records that 40,000 were killed in the city and another 40,000 sold into slavery, including the elderly women and children. Furthermore, Antiochus banned the practice of the Jewish religion. He defiled the sanctuary He put a stop to the daily offerings, he sacrificed pigs in the temple, and he erected a monument or an altar to Zeus at the altar of burnt offerings and built a citadel to keep an eye on the activity of the temple so that no troublesome Jewish worship would happen there. Now Antiochus Epiphanes was not the only wicked king among the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. I mean, that story I shared of Antiochus, Ptolemy, Bernice and Laodice had its own evidence of wickedness. But in these portraits, you can see why the rulers of the nations in Daniel chapter seven were represented as grotesque beasts stamping around and inflicting carnage on the earth. And Antiochus is easily the worst of the bunch, for he stands out for his distinct and direct persecution of the saints. In fact, as we will see in the next sermon, as the message to Daniel goes on, Antiochus is introduced as as a type of the Antichrist, who will do even worse to the saints. So you can see the instability and the wickedness of the nations. Kings who can't pass their thrones on to their sons. Royal lines that whipsaw back and forth from one descendant to another. Marriage is made for political purposes and and ended for political purposes. Kings who have to keep their head on a swivel, even where their own families are concerned. A prime minister who disobeys orders. And to cap it off, a king who desecrates the holy temple to the living God. And this is such a contrast to God's reign over all the earth. Now the fact alone that God is able to tell Daniel what will happen in the coming centuries shows that his hand is governing it all, and his plans will stand secure. For God isn't showing off that he can predict the future. Prophecy isn't, uh, isn't an exercise or a, a trick in fortune-telling. God is demonstrating his divine control of world events and he's interpreting these events for his people so that they may be prepared for what's coming. God knows what will happen because it's all in his hands and the power is his. As it says in Psalm 33, the counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. And God rules with righteousness. For he is the one whose character is true justice. And yet for all his majesty and power, he rules you, his people, in kindness for your own good. As he says in Jeremiah to his saints going into exile, he has a plan for their good, not for their harm. Plans for a future and a hope. So, We've just covered roughly 400 years of history. A history in which God's people are, in the best of times, pawns in a political game, and at worst, slaughtered for their faith. How do God's people endure? And we see from the activity of the saints, recorded in just a few verses in this passage, we see that it takes confidence in God and wisdom from God. We see in verse 32 that the people who know their gods shall stand firm and take action. For the nations have proven their instability. Their gods are illusions, unable to save anybody. But God has made good promises for his people, and he has the power and the love to carry them out. For within a few years after Antiochus defiled the temple, what happens? Some faithful Jews had the courage to stand up to him. And a guerrilla force led by Judah Maccabee re- retook Jerusalem from Antiochus. and They purified the temple. They reinstituted proper worship. Out of confidence that the God of heaven would be able to restore to them the ability to worship the way God commanded anybody can see that God follows through on his promises. Even the false prophet Balaam says of the Lord, has he said and will he not do it? Has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? And you too can have confidence in God. For God has made his promises to bring you safely through this life and into the life to come. And he is well able to do it. He's proved it in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. For Jesus was, in fact, dead. He suffered the wrath of God for the sins of those who trust in him. His lifeless corpse had a spear stuck through it, and his body was removed from the cross and laid in a tomb. A stone sealed him in, and Roman soldiers prevented anybody from tampering with the corpse inside. But a remarkable thing happened, for just as God promised that his Holy One would not see corruption, he raised Jesus from the dead, just as Jesus himself said he would do. For Jesus had confidence in his Father, and his Father raised him from the dead, a mark of approval on all that Jesus had done. And now that Jesus has been raised from the dead, you have all the proof you need that God can and will deliver you through death, too. And so you will never be God like Jesus, but you will be alive like Him. No matter what the twists and turns of this life do to you, you will have your life and you will have your God. But the question still remains you have this confidence from God how to put it into practice. How do we put confidence into practice? Because confidence in God on its own isn't enough. Look back at verse 14 like I promised we would, what, 20 minutes ago? It says that the violent among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fail. For some time as the Ptolemies and the Seleucids were fighting over possession of Palestine, the visible people of God thought they saw an opportunity to rise up and assert themselves. They thought they were bringing about God's promise through their actions. But it wasn't the right time. And God didn't permit their uprising to, con- to succeed. So we see that confidence in God isn't enough, but confidence combined with wisdom from God can accomplish a great deal in his kingdom. We return to verse 33, where it says, The wise among the people shall make many understand. For when that Maccabean revolt came around, the wise knew this time it was time to stand up. And what made this episode different from the earlier episode? I can't be dogmatic on this point, but I think the difference is that back in verse 14 the people still had the ability to worship properly. And they tried to seize a merely political advantage. But here, Antiochus Epiphanes outlaws Jewish worship itself. And so the time was right to rise up and reassert the proper worship of the living God. And don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that engaging in political life is unbecoming of Christians. We live in a society where we have the right to speak up, the right to vote, the right to run for office, and so on. And you should use those rights as you think most wise. But when it comes to these two situations in this passage, the saints under Antiochus saw correctly that it was time to rise up, but the earlier saints saw incorrectly. And yet even the latter Wiser saints were in some ways not wise enough. For it says several times in verses 33 through 35 that they stumble. They stumble under persecution. They stumble because false brothers join them. And from this, we find two lessons. First, as Sinclair Ferguson puts it, evil can only gain a foothold in the city of God with the help of the visible people of God. For false brothers joined themselves to the community by flattering the true brothers, which led to some of the wise stumbling. That's why we exercise diligence and care when people want to join the church. Now, only God can make someone a part of his invisible church by faith, but we try to assess whether somebody has a true, though imperfect, but true faith when we recognize them as a member of the visible church, accepting them into communicant membership. Or another way we exercise wisdom is discussing matters of faith among friends. For we have the responsibility to test everything we say or with everything we say and hear by scripture, lovingly correcting one another, accepting correction when we fall short in doctrine and life. Sometimes we have to be extremely judicious even with the way people say things because the meanings of words are so easily twisted to make it sound like there's agreement with true doctrine when there really isn't. That doesn't mean we should walk around suspicious of one another always checking your six for we also pursue the peace of the church along with its purity but there's always the responsibility to think things through carefully. The second lesson, when you fall short in matters of wisdom, God is still faithful. None of us is wise enough to make everything turn out all right. I want to be cautious because we know that suffering does come to the wise also through no fault of their own. Look at Jesus. He had perfect wisdom. He knew how to accomplish his goals perfectly. What happened to him? He suffered and died at the hands of lawless men. But whether our suffering is brought by our own failure of wisdom or by the sins of others, suffering is transformed by God into something beautiful. For God leads you through suffering so that, as it says here, you may be refined, purified, and made white. Jesus himself was made perfect through suffering, and you too must be made like him in that you will suffer. And if he doesn't return first, you'll die. But as Paul says in Romans 8, we are only glorified with him, and we only share in his royal inheritance if we suffer with him. And that goes to show how great God's wisdom is is for the wisdom that you have is a gift from God, a gift of savvy to persevere through the trials of life. And yet, when your wisdom fails you, God is wise enough to turn it to your good and to purify you for it. And so, be confident. The world is unstable and wicked, and you have to live in it for a while. But God is solid. And God is righteous, and God is wise. And Jesus went through too much for you to do anything other than purify you so that he may present you to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your son and for the gift of the holy spirit father we thank you for the gift of wisdom that comes from you for you alone are the source of all wisdom and father we thank you for the wisdom to persevere and father we thank you that even where we fail you are able to carry out your good purposes for us. And so, Father, we pray that we would go forth this week and through the rest of our lives in that confidence and wisdom and that you would bear fruit in us and through us. For the sake of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.